It seems that hardly a week goes by when there is not some scandal or other, when we're not reminded of the failure of Christians to live like we expect them to live. And the funny thing is that you don't have to be part of the church to be disappointed by that. Because really, everyone is disappointed by that. Whether Christian or not, we all share the assumption that someone who claims to follow Jesus ought to live in a different way from someone who doesn't make that claim. And in fact... It's when Christians live as though they weren't a part of God's kingdom, as though they weren't changed, that's when the scandal occurs. And the reality is people notice that, don't they? And they'll remind you. And they'll throw up objection after objection. And it'll sound something like this. How is it that they say one thing yet do another? Why are they after me about fill-in-the-blank when they themselves fill-in-the-blank, right? We hear that all the time. And I think it's probably worth stopping to ask the question, why would people make that assumption? Why would someone expect a difference from someone who claims to be a Christian than someone who doesn't make that claim? Are they justified in that expectation or not? <laughs> Isn't it enough simply to say, you know, I'm not perfect. God's not finished with me yet. I suppose that there's a chance, probably more than an outside chance, that they get this idea from Jesus himself. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the first recorded sermon of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is here, really in his introduction to this sermon, that Jesus sets down the dividing uh, line here where a kingdom person diverges from someone who is not part of his kingdom. Where Jesus becomes, where, where Jesus says that someone who is part of the kingdom lives this way, and, and that's in the introduction of the sermon. He wants to arrest us with the fact that whatever he's talking about when he's talking about his kingdom, it is going to be different from what you expect. This radical list in Matthew chapter 5 we call the Beatitudes, is a signal to his disciples and to those who have come to watch the sermon as a spectacle that life in this kingdom of Jesus is going to be different from life outside. So let's read what he has to say in Matthew chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so this morning, we are going to take part of that list, um, Beatitudes numbers 4 through 7, or uh, probably more easily, verses 6 through 9, and see these four qualities that characterize people who are kingdom people. We're going to look at these four qualities that ensure that people who are part of the kingdom of God will, in fact, thrive. You may remember that last week when we introduced this, we used several synonyms for the word blessed. That someone who is blessed is someone who is flourishing or thriving or happy. Someone is blessed when they are truly living or experiencing life in a way that is fully human. We say that because Jesus in This sermon presents a vision for life that rivals any alternative vision that you may have from some company mission statement or political platform. Jesus gives us a vision of human flourishing uh, about what it means to be truly happy or truly satisfied. In other words, these Beatitudes reflect the way that Jesus thinks. It is best to live in this world. And so last week, we looked at the first three. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And those in some regard form a uh, foundation for uh, kingdom living. And then... The four that we'll look at today build on top of those three because those really set up the the character or the the, um, attitude of life, the direction, and these four today fill in what it means to be that way. And so, the first, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or, I suppose you could say, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst to be right. To to be right with God, to have the world be right. For ultimately it will be, and they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does it mean... To hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is that righteousness that whets the appetite like that? 
I think there are two legitimate options, two that you may have heard or two that, you may, that may come to your mind. The first is what we might say is an internal rightness before God. There is a hunger and a thirst to be right with God. And I think that that is certainly legitimate. The second would be more external. The first is internal. The second is external righteousness. That you would hunger and thirst to do the right thing. Or hunger and thirst for things in the world to be right. Now, I suggest that we have these two alternatives, an internal righteousness and an external righteousness. And even saying that suggests that it's possible to divorce the one from the other. And really, when we say, oh, someone can be right with God and not care about whether the world is right with God, not care if things are right and just in the world, That doesn't compute. The Bible doesn't make that separation. Because there is no internal righteousness that doesn't show itself. There is no way that righteousness is somehow secret. Because the way the Bible talks about righteousness, um, it may be an internal rightness before God, but it always finds its way out. And so I don't think you can make that distinction. You have to say the the person who is hungry, who is um, just dying of thirst for themselves to be right with God and for the world to be right, that's the person Jesus has in mind. Not merely I want to live as one who is right with God, but I want to live as one who wants the world to be right as well. I care about righteousness and justice. Uh, Pastor Travis in Wilsonville helped me with this a little bit. He said, as I hunger and thirst for righteousness, it may mean that I want you to do what's right. I may desire that the community or the country do what is right. But when I get hungry, I'm not merely satisfied with watching you eat. If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I don't only want justice in the world. I want to be part of that justice and righteousness myself. And you see what Jesus is doing. If we pull out a little bit up from this beatitude, we see that Jesus is creating a kingdom that is beginning in this world and will one day reach its fulfillment. But beginning in this world, in this world that is upside down and messed up, He is trying to get His kingdom right side up where His people see the world for what it is, that see it broken, that see people mistreated, that see 
hurts and injustice. And they are dissatisfied with that to the point that they desire themselves to get involved. The glory of this, the beauty of this, is that they will be satisfied. They will be filled. That the, the hunger and the thirst that they have will be completely satisfied. This indicates to me that what we have when we're talking about this is the fact that this kingdom of Jesus is a just and good kingdom. It is a kingdom that infects the world with justice and righteousness. And one day when justice and righteousness um, are ultimately fulfilled when Jesus reigns without rival, the person who desired that now will be satisfied. The desire of your heart will be given to you. And I, I think some of this is that we, we miss this. Some of us... I suppose you might say don't care. We're not very hungry and thirsty. We have no appetite. And that's a problem. Other people have appetites that they fill with other things. That they hunger and thirst. And then they seek cheap substitutes. Jeremiah says, Be appalled, O heavens, Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. they're, They're satisfying whatever thirst they have, whatever ache, for whatever recognition the world is not right, they're filling it with other things. When Jesus says... I myself am the fountain of living water. As he said to the woman of the well, the the person who drinks this water that I offer will never be thirsty again. Yet we find cheap substitutes. And so Jesus calls his followers to represent his interests in the world in a way that says, this is not right. This needs to be made right. I'm not right. I need to be made right. And we hunger and thirst at a deep down level to be right with God and see the world made right with God as well. There is a corollary in verse 7. Then the next one essentially just comes straight off of that when it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are merciful also see the world as broken and not working. They also look out and say, if God was at work in this world, what would it be like? And they actively step in to the brokenness. 
there is, there is a resistance, I have to say, to reading the Beatitudes. And I've sensed it, I think, more and more as I've gotten older. And, this, and the resistance is that we just can't have a bunch of wimpy Christians. We can't simply have people who are poor in spirit and meek and merciful and mournful. What? <laughs> and I just want to say, yes, we can. Number one, Jesus thinks we can. Number two, number two, the word merciful does, does not describe, as one commentator said, the ubiquitous and shallow virtue of niceness or tolerance in Western culture, but rather to be merciful uh, represents concrete actions of love and compassion and sympathetic grace to those who are oppressed or to those who have sinned. The mercy, this mercy springs from the hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is one external application of the righteousness of God. To show mercy is to act to alleviate suffering. It is spoken of in a lot of different ways in the Bible is spoken of as uh, giving alms, a word we don't use very much, but taking care of the poor, or visiting the prisoner, or caring for orphans and widows, or tending to the sick. All of these are ways that one might show mercy. And the thing is, that's what it means to be merciful. It doesn't, <laughs> there is no such thing as mercy that says, I'm going to think merciful thoughts today. I'm going to sit at home and watch uh, TV and think merciful thoughts. Or think righteous thoughts even. But rather, these are active things that someone will actually go out and live in this way. And this shouldn't surprise you, should it? Because we know that the Scripture reveals God to be righteous and just. And so He cares about righteousness and justice in the world. The, the Scripture reveals God, and we've sung about it and read about it already, where God is merciful, and He desires mercy to be shown in the world. And how is He going to do that? Through His kingdom, people who are merciful. And the beauty of it is that if you are merciful, it means you will thrive because in the end, after living a life of mercy, a life of kingdom values where you are generous to people who cannot repay you, then when the kingdom is fully present and Jesus reigns without rival, you will be shown mercy yourself. Whatever loss you think you incurred by helping another with their loss will be repaid. In effect, Jesus is saying in this beatitude, you will never be the loser for helping others win. You will never be impoverished by giving to others. One day, the mercy you show will be given back to you. And you can trust the king to run his kingdom like that. The third beatitude in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
or congratulations to those who are pure in heart. They're really living. And they will one day see God. I think we have trouble pretty much with all of these Beatitudes. Pretty much all of them go against the grain of our natural way of living, which is Jesus' intent. But we really struggle with this one, I think. Because pure in heart is something that we have this sense of that somehow doesn't fit us. And so we think, blessed are the pure in heart, we, th- we, we have to do some calculations. Like, exactly how pure in heart does one have to be? Is there some kind of sliding scale where if you somehow make it past a six, you're good? We view it like a little boy who goes outside and when he stops at the door, his mom says, don't get dirty. And he goes out and when he goes out, one of two things happens. Either he doesn't have any fun or he doesn't stay clean. And that, I think, is how we view this beatitude, right? We're either going to have fun or we're going to like do this. When I don't think that's the way that Jesus is looking at it. When Jesus is talking about blessed are the pure in heart, he doesn't have in view of the people, uh, he, he doesn't have in view people who get it mostly right. <laughs> he doesn't have in view people that do, you know, better than average. What, what I think he has in view is, is an Old Testament category of people who are, in other, other Old Testament words, who are upright or who are the godly. The upright as opposed to sinners or the godly as opposed to the wicked. And you see these contrasted in the Proverbs and in Psalms all the time. And you either are one or you're the other. There isn't a third category. There isn't a middle ground. You're going to be on one path or the other. And so the pure in heart is the person who is upright or who desires God and His will above all things. For instance, Psalm 73, uh, which is, by the way, a psalm about the brokenness of the world. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, hmm, Well, is he good to all of these people? Or is he good to only those that on the sliding scale do pretty well? How does that work? I think the way that it works in Psalm 73, I think the way that that Jesus is using it is that God is good to his people. Who are his people? The people who are categorized as pure in heart. The people who have been transformed and are being transformed by their relationship with God. So that then, like in Psalm 73, they are dissatisfied with the injustice in the world. They are dissatisfied when they do not experience God and His rule like He intends. And so truly, God is good to His people. 
That is, those who are pure in heart. And so when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's saying those who are being cleansed, those who are being made pure by faith in God. And I say that again, and you're thinking, okay, well, I've got some of it clean and some of it not clean. And we still just, like, just go right back there with this topic, don't we? But it is a work that God performs as He brings people in. It's a work He performs in you as He brings you in to His kingdom. And it may help if you recognize that pure in heart, there is a, cure, there is a contrast when He says, blessed are the pure in heart. There is a contrast, and this is the one we hear, between pure and impure. <laughs> Between clean and dirty, right? That's And we say, oh, how scrubbed up am I? It may be that Jesus, in fact, has in mind a different contrast. So that his, the contrast he has in mind is those who are pure in heart as opposed to those who are pure in appearance. That there is this sense in which what people think religion does is scrub up the outside. Is make you look presentable. And there might be, this happens all the time when people come to church on a Sunday morning simply for that reason, to look like they've got it together. And really, I think that this may be at least part of what Jesus has in mind because in chapter 6, he, he, <laughs> he goes off on it, you might say. He says, don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by other people. In other words, be pure in heart, not pure in appearance. He says, don't, don't say your prayers out loud on the street corner. That's not what this is about. Go into your closet. He says, when it comes time to give alms, don't let everyone know. Don't shake the can and let everyone know, here, I've done this. Rather, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. That's the way that Jesus is talking about this in chapter 6. And so what he is after are people who, and again, it goes back to the hungering and thirsting, to the desire of your heart to be with God. It's what I hope we cultivate here every week. Uh, the aim of our teaching in First Timothy says, the aim of our teaching is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're here this morning. It is the opposite of the complaint of the prophet when he says, they draw near me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so Jesus is highlighting the characteristic of his kingdom are people who are sincere in their desire to have God above all else. And I know that in part because those people are happy and satisfied and thrive when, in fact, the very thing they want is the very thing they get. For they shall see God. I think this is ultimately how you know you're pure in heart. If what you want more than anything else 
is to see God and be with God. Because it is only this blessing that answers the pure in heart. He gives you, just, just like mercy or just like mourning needs comfort and uh, hungering and thirsting needs satisfaction, so being pure in heart uh, is happy when they see God. Well, the fourth characteristic that we'll look at this morning of people who live in the kingdom, who thrive, is that the peacemakers, the peacemakers are the ones who are truly living. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. It's very easy, I think, for us to, to, to pretend that this isn't very important. Jeremiah 6 says, They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. I think it's very easy for us to just uh, not deal with things. And not dealing with things has the appearance of being peacemaking, but it really is simply people-pleasing. And we heal things lightly. And I think what he's talking about, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who bring the healing. Blessed are those who engage other people in such a way that they bring peace with them and they bring peace between other people. Romans 12 articulates it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. So yes, as far as it depends on me, live peaceably with one, with one another. I live peaceably with you, you live peaceably with me. But I also live in a way that brings peace between other people. You may be uh, familiar with the Hebrew greeting, shalom, which is essentially their word translated peace. And so to make peace is to bring God's shalom into the world. And Shalom has this idea of everything being right. Not merely of conflict ceasing, of fights stopping and quarreling not happening anymore, but more the idea of all of life is just as it should be. Which is exactly, I think, the essence of the kingdom Jesus is bringing. He's bringing a kingdom whose, whose atmosphere, you might say, is this shalom. This life that's truly life. This life that is really living that Jesus invites us into. And so blessed are those who bring shalom to their workplace. <laughs> who bring this, this thriving, this, this life as it's supposed to be, into their home. Who don't cover things up lightly, but are willing to do whatever work needs to take place to get the resolution so that life can be lived as it's meant to be lived. And again, this should be no surprise that this is one of the facets of Christ's kingdom. Because the good news of Jesus is peace-bringing news. 
To believe the gospel of Jesus is to have God Himself engage you in such a way that He makes peace not only with you. Romans 5 tells us that we have peace with God. But when we have peace with God, He brings it in such a way that we have peace with one another. And trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ means that God is at work in and through you so that you might be a person of peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 highlights one of the more difficult ways in which we don't have peace, namely uh, ethnic peace or racial peace. And he says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I want you to note that Jesus Himself being our peace comes at the cross. It comes at the point when on His flesh He took our rebellion and animosity and conflict. So that it is the very death and resurrection of Jesus that produces the foundation for this peace. Goes on to say, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself, so that Jesus takes the responsibility for bringing this peace too. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. If the king is a peacemaker, it should be no surprise then that the citizens of his kingdom are peacemakers. They bring this life as it's meant to be lived between man and God, between, us, between people um, in the world. You might say the, the king is a peacemaker, so the citizens are peacemakers. You could also say that God himself is the God of peace, Philippians 4.9. So it should not be surprising that if he's the father and he's the God of peace, that his children should be called peacemakers. Or to put it in the way the Beatitude puts it, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. They will be the heirs of God. They will be the family of God. Like father, like son. The apple, as they say, does not fall far from the tree when it comes to peace. And so these are four characteristics of several that identify the nature of the kingdom that Christ is building. It defines for us the kind of life He means for us to live, the kind of person that lives in this kingdom. It probably will be helpful for us to pull out for just a moment from looking at the trees. I think there's a danger in just saying, here is the hunger and thirst for righteousness tree and the merciful tree and the pure in heart tree and the peacemaker tree. But to pull out and say, let's look at the forest for a second. To ask ourselves a question, what is Jesus doing? What is he doing here? Well, he's already told us in chapter 4, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is bringing this kingdom. He is beginning this kingdom operation in a foreign world. In a world that is upside down, He is bringing a right-side-up kingdom. 
telling us that his kingdom operates a certain way. So that if you are part of the kingdom, you should operate upside down from the way the world operates. It should be scandalous if someone who claims to be part of the kingdom acts as though they're outside the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom people are a certain kind of person. I think he is also using words that say this is not some self-improvement program so that you get a certain way through this and somehow you cross the threshold and you're all of a sudden Jesus' person. I think he is talking about these stark categories of people that are so foreign to us, so foreign to our inclination, so foreign to the world, that the only way to be included in this kingdom is to recognize that this king is so full of grace and so full of peace and so full of power that those who come to him can be transformed. And those who come to him must be clear about what it is they're signing on for. So I think that's one of the reasons I want to talk about it like this. So that when you come to Jesus, you know that you're signing up to have Him be your King. You're signing up to, to, to follow His pattern, to live in His kingdom in the way that He wants us, His kingdom to run. And I say that because there is a history, at least for me, with my Christianity that suggests that God has a much shallower agenda than this. That suggests that God is merely trying to get people to pray a prayer and get saved. That God is simply trying to get people to heaven with Him. And I think that while that might be a fraction of what God is doing, a tiny fraction of what God is doing in the world. I think it's easy when we major on that to miss the scope of what he's trying to do in this kingdom. And I think it's easily caricatured by those outside the kingdom to say, yeah, all they, all they want is souls to get saved. They don't care about life in this world. They don't care about the way that human beings live and thrive. When in fact, Jesus is saying that very thing. I do care about the way human beings thrive. And this is the way it happens. And those who are part of the kingdom will also care about things like mercy and justice and peace. And so, looking at the whole panorama, God is establishing outposts of this foreign kingdom in a land that is not uh, His. He is is creating these embassies of another kingdom that represent a world that is finally right side up in a world that is upside down. This embassy, this outpost, has a different character altogether from the character of the world around it. And life in that outpost, in that embassy, 
and in that kingdom represents what it means to be fully human, to thrive in a way that catches all of us off guard because we're not wired that way. We're not walking that way accidentally. But it also, at least to me, and I hope to you, looks beautiful. It looks like people who are not so full of themselves. It looks like people who are compassionate to others. It looks like people who mourn over the injustice in the world. It looks like people who are willing to step out and help others bring this shalom that God wants for all of us. And because it looks that way, it just draws me in. And I hope it does that to you too. I hope that it just that you recognize that even in the description that Jesus gives us of his kingdom, it is an invitation that says, won't you come join me? Won't you come live this way? Won't you experience this kingdom of grace that offers this kind of thriving so that your hunger and thirst for righteousness is satisfied? Your risk to show mercy is rewarded with mercy itself. Your sincerity of heart in desiring God is satisfied because you are the one that would see God. And then you live in the world as a peacemaker, representing the God of peace. And we know that, I mean, really the best part of this message, I mean, the best part of this message is that the full enjoyment of the kingdom is still to come. All of these things, this satisfaction, this seeing God, this being called sons of God, the experience of mercy, all of this is coming when Jesus fully reigns and our hope finds its rest when Jesus comes and reigns. Which makes me simply say, Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are, um, (laughs) it's just so easy for us to get goofed up on these things. Will you transform your people into these kind of people? Will you make us live in the world in a way that people see and glorify Jesus? Would you do that for the sake of the glory of our King? and for the good of your people so that people might identify us by the way that we live in this world with the person of Jesus. And Father, may you one day satisfy us with all that you've promised. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.